You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Today, we've got Will Anderson, one of Australia's most beloved award-winning stand-up comedians. He is the host of two television shows and four podcasts about everything from comedy, philosophy, and Aussie rules football. He has a new book, which just released its I'm Not Fine, Thanks, which he uh, he can now add to his accomplishments as a best-selling author. And on recording this, his new stand-up special, Willogical, has just been released on Australia's ABC TV. Will, it's a pleasure to have you uh, back with us here on Inverse um, as Godbotherers here on Inverse Podcasts. Well, thank you very much for having me. I super appreciate it. And with all those things that you just read out, I can't imagine how I have the time to be doing this, but I actually do have the time and I I allowed plenty of time because I thought we'd be settling in for a great conversation. And I realized as we've come on the Zoom, the way the light is coming down, uh, you know, in, in the background of my Zoom makes this feel very spiritual. So I feel like this is going to be a very good chat today. I'm excited to be part of it. Oh, we'll, we will hang out for as long as you want to be around. So um, you, you just let us know. Um, but congrats with uh, the book, the new stand-up special. Um, being able to be doing comedy again with people, not just online like now. It's um, it's exciting times for you again. It's what happened was that basically there was two years where I had to scramble to find other ways to pay my bills because suddenly being a stand-up comedian, going from room to room, gathering people into small unventilated rooms and trying to get them to expel fluids from their mouth as often as possible was kind of a dangerous way to make a living for a couple of years. So uh, I had to pivot and try to do something else. And uh, then all these projects ended up sort of happening at once, once everything else opened up. So it, it feels like it's been an incredibly busy year. But I must say that one of the things that COVID has taught me is not only like the appreciation I have for being able to work, you know, like there's nothing like having something taken away and the future of it taken away to make you rethink what your relationship is with that work and why you do it and what you're trying to get across to people. And, you know, staring that um, idea of, you know, I went a year of not having done a show and every moment in that year, I was thinking, oh, that show, that last show that I did might be the last time that I ever get to speak to people. Did I say everything that I wanted to say in that moment to them in the way that I wanted to say it to them? And so then being able to go back into the world, having your perspective, you know, slightly changed by, you know, having that revelation has just been, I've just been delighted to be able to do everything that I've done and like, including mm. getting to do this today. It's a, um, you know, it's a delight to even have the space in your life to be able to come on and, you know, have these sort of conversations. So thank you for having me again. I oh, answer nice. questions in a really long way. Sorry, guys, this is, I apologize. Hey, that's probably why you got four podcasts, Will. Like it's, yeah. it's the nature of the format. Yeah, it's hard to shut me up. Um, we, we, we want to talk to you about heaps of stuff um, from calling to surfing cows to echidnas 
um, to climate change. Uh, but probably a disclaimer is, is necessary. Um, you've been kind enough to come on Inverse before and um, our, our not so hidden pun inverse as in verses as in verses from the Bible. And last what? time you chose, <laughs> what have I been tricked into? Hang on. It's like those people who knock on the door. I just thought they wanted a cup of tea. I've been um, catfished. That's right. <laughs> last time you chose Matthew uh, 7, 12, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Reflecting on that verse, I've decided that I won't make you go through all of that again. I won't make you choose a, a passage. Um, but uh, we have a mate, Rowan, who is going to kind of bridge the world of Bible nerdiness and comedy for us. Um, uh, Rowan is uh, an up-and-coming comedian who at the Melbourne Fringe um, won uh, Best Comedy recently, and people might have seen him on, on Triple J. He's kind of just following your foot like from from triple j to um uh, melbourne comedy festival rowan um can we welcome you to the show oh thanks so much chad pleasure to be here um appreciate you and drew having me on um will it's also a great pleasure to meet you too i've actually been a huge fan of your work since i started out in comedy so uh and look if i'm honest i'm actually i'm actually very nervous um about meeting you in in this context you know because uh, you know, they say you should never meet your heroes, but what do they say about uh, engaging in a public Bible study with the, with them? <laughs> like that, that sounds like a lot, don't you reckon? Like that seems exhausting. People are crushed when they don't get a selfie with you, but how, how am I going to feel when halfway through this podcast, you're like, have a hot take on predestination. And I was like, oh, well, that's devastating. Cause I thought you were more of a free will kind of guy, you know, like that, um, that, I don't know. <laughs> Well, firstly, Rowan, you've got to understand, of course, I would be a free will guy because it's a will pun and I can actually make it into a show title. Already have. Did it about 10 years ago. So absolutely, you're right on that. But secondly, what a what better place to like meet? This is much more interesting than like I, I've always been very uncomfortable meeting people, particularly around shows. I will say this mm. because the show is this distillation normally of like I always just talk about my shows as being like, where am I in the world and what does the world look like to me? That's all the theme of my show is every year. So it's kind of some stories about where I'm at mixed in with some stories about where I feel like the world at is at and what my relationship between those two things is. And uh, so I give people all of that on stage for, you know, the 70 minutes that the show goes. And then afterwards, they want to meet me for a selfie. And it's not that I, like, feel like, it's not like I don't want to, like, meet people or appreciate that they have come to see the show and, like, I want that moment to be good for them. But when you've just put everything out on the table, like, then the idea of switching immediately to small talk is just, like, the amount of times <laughs> oh, that crazy. I can't stop it. So I'll just end up extrapolating on things I've talked about in the show in, like, depths that they clearly do not need, you know? And I can see them just going, oh, yeah, we just wanted a photo. And I'm like, yeah, I can't get back to that mode immediately. I'm still like, my brain is just like going full stop. So I think this is, a, I, I would love if every time I got to meet somebody, I got to meet them in an experience. You know, I think that's actually yeah, a cool totally. way because also what a, I'm one of those people who meets a lot of people. I'd love my secret ability to be that I remember everybody, but because I meet so many people and my brain doesn't just hold on to those things that well, sometimes I can meet someone, but I can't place them. Whereas like, 
when you do something like this and you're like, oh, I know Rowan, I met him that day on Inverse Podcast, like this, it will all, it all connects in your mind. So I'd actually prefer that every time I meet someone, can we have a unique process that I can associate with that person? Amazing. Amazing. So you can just, um, you know, you can from here on, uh, just remember me as Christian Nazim Hussain. That sounds, yeah. that sounds awesome. <laughs> that sounds great. Look Finally. forward to hearing. Finally, yeah. we've got one. That's all <laughs> I'm saying. Look, looking for, looking forward to being introduced at Spleen like that. Um, anyway, uh, no, it's awesome. That's awesome, and and what a great time. Yep, that's great. That's great. So, Rowan, real quick question though. All right, so we've asked you to be on the show today to be our comedy Bible translator. So, sure. what exactly makes you uh, equipped to bridge the gap between comedy and the Bible? Oh, completely nothing. Absolutely nothing, um, Drew. But I do have, no, I do have a few things. Um, like uh, Jared mentioned, you know, people might recognize me. They probably don't. But if they do and they're like, that guy seems familiar, um, you know, I've done, uh, you know, I was, they might have seen my clip that I was on Triple J a couple of times. And then, you know, they might have seen me at the Comedy Zone um, show at the Comedy Festival a couple of years ago. Um, or they might, um, you know, they might've seen me at a show somewhere. Um, but so, so I kind of have some experience in that comedy world. Uh, but, uh, you know, in terms of the Bible stuff, it's actually, it's actually hard for me to kind of, I guess, uh, say this, I know this is a safe space, but, um, I, you know, recently just, um, I actually just came out, uh, as a Christian uh which was yeah which was which was hard uh, thank you thank you so much um is, and i don't know what i've i've got myself involved with today <laughs> i didn't realize jared are you a christian hang on <laughs> um, apparently there's more than one coming out and look people were really nice about it too people were like hey rowan like we like I was like, guys, there's something I need to tell you. I need to live my life authentically. Um, there's this guy, and immediately they were like, Rowan, like we we love you, we care about you, we're so ex we're excited for you. In fact, we can't wait to meet him. And I was like, oh man, that that feels so great because um, he can't wait to meet you too. Uh, <laughs> his his name's Jesus Christ, and uh, I think he could be a personal Lord and Savior. Uh, anyway, safe to say, I've alienated a few people uh, in my life. Um, if they're listening, I love you. Please come back. And, uh, but no, um, so I do have a little bit of experience in both. Um, and much like an awkward uh, youth pastor, um, Will, I'm going to lead you through a Bible game just to kind of get you in the Bible mood. Um, do you, do you ever feel like you're in the Bible mood, Will? Uh, is it, we have, has the game started? Am I already, <laughs> <laughs> like, are we playing already? Oh, no, 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 this is just, an, this is just like a, this is just, a, have, do you ever feel like you're in the Bible mood? Have you ever been like, oh yeah, go Bible right now? No? You know what, here's what I will say about the Bible mood. When I was young, because I grew up like around the church and I like sure. Bible games, I like Bible games. So oh, if yeah. you're asking me, am I in the Bible game mood, then I'm in the Bible game mood. I don't know if I've ever <laughs> sat around in the Bible mood, but like I'm, I'm definitely up for a Bible game. Nice. That sounds good. Um, and you shouldn't feel weird about that because most Christians aren't in the Bible mood anyway. So um, you don't need to feel bad. So um, this is kind of like a Bible Mad Libs um, uh. kind of thing. So I've got a couple of Bible verses that... I'll start and um, I'll, I'll have a start to them and I'm going to get you to kind of complete them. Does that sound okay, great. Sure. pretty simple? Um, so the 
they'll start kind of easy and then they'll kind of get a little bit harder. Okay. okay. So, so first one um, is, um, all right, here we go. <clears throat> so the start of the verse is, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your, finish this. Will, yeah, will be done. Amazing. Amazing. Um, and that everyone is how you get uh, Will Anderson to publicly pray on a podcast. Thank you very much. No, no, I was just talking about the uh, title of my touring show. I'll be doing in five years from now. We'll right. so, <laughs> one L. Amazing. Amazing. No, just, just, uh, yeah, exactly right. So that was from Matthew six, nine. Uh, Ron, how many of these are there? There's just, there's just one. We can do one more. Are we straight for time? <laughs> yeah, no. We no can you, do one you do two. You do two. That's fine. Do two more? Okay. Um, so the next one, Will, is, but seek first his kingdom and his justice and all these things, dot, dot, dot. Uh, look, I'm hoping it's got Will in it also. Yes. Will, will be. recognise the pattern. Yes. So will be. So it's like, it, it's, I mean, it might be will be yours, but yours feels like a bit too modern a word. Like, so, oh, your, but they use your, will be yours. Mm -hmm. Will be yours. So, but, so you're, I'll, we'll lock this in, but seek first his kingdom and his justice and all these things will be yours. Uh, like it's it. kind of close. It's kind of yeah, close, it's isn't close. it? Rowan, it's, it's like a paraphrase. It is a paraphrase. It's like the one best of the things version. that Will's been working on during the pandemic is a paraphrase of Matthew's gospel. That's awesome. The gospel according to Will. Um, yeah. Well, so the, the the full phrase is we'll be giving what to you as it? well. So let's give. I reckon we give oh, that man. to him. That's yeah. that, that's that's over that's two from two. I, I've that just written a book. No editor would let you put that in a book these days. <laughs> like, get to the point. Three words will be yours. Everyone understands yeah. what we're talking about, guys. That's definitely Mark's critique of Matthew's gospel. It's like, this is way too long. <laughs> too wordy. I, did, I summed down. this up in 16 chapters. You went 28. Like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Final one. Here we go. Will, you ready? You, yes. You're two from two. All right. Here we go. So the verse is, who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. He looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's dot, dot, dot. Whoever does God's will, um, something else, something Awkward. else. Uh, <laughs> whoever does God's will is my mother and brother, my brother oh, and sister. Oh, my he did it! <laughs> oh my gosh, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Will Christian Anderson. <laughs> that was incredible. Impressed. Yeah, wow. Three from three. All right. All right. I think I'm done here, Jared. Um, Andrew, thanks for having me. This is this has been a highlight of my Christian and comedic career. Um, and um <laughs> Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, mate. I'll, uh, Thank you, Rowan. I'm going to go on mute. I appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Oh, that, Thanks, that Rowan. <laughs> All right. Um, Will, there's uh, there have been many 20th century famous evangelists named Billy, right? There's been <laughs> Billy Graham, Billy Sunday. But Jared tells me you had a different Billy in an audience of thousands that changed your life. Can you share a little bit about uh, the Scotsman who was a part of your realizing your own call? 
it's it's interesting that you talk about it in this way and i'm glad that we're talking about it in this way because it honestly is as close to what i imagine that feeling must be like you know mm. like i mean as as spoilers guys like you know i haven't had that call in a in the religious sense but like i really did in relation to you know what became my life purpose which was um i went to see a comedian called billy connolly with my mum when i was 17 years old and I, I reflect on this so much. Like, so firstly, I reflect on my mother. Uh, I was on a dairy farm in country Victoria and she, I was about to go off to university to study journalism, which I ended up doing. But um, she, that's a pretty, you know, reliable career at the time, you know, first kid in the family to go off to university. And she saved up money and drove me three hours down and three hours, you know, back home to go and see Billy Connolly when I was 17 years old. And I just have to think there was a part of her that knew that this was something that I was really passionate about. Like, you know, she went to a lot of effort to make it happen at a time when I was going off on a different path, not to necessarily change what my path was, but to just show me that there were other options and things that I was clearly already interested in that were out there in the world. And I'm not even sure she thought it through to that extent, but her instincts as a mother knew that it was an important thing to do. And she sacrificed a lot to get us there to do it. And in that room that night, I sat in an audience at Hamer Hall of, you know, 3000 people or whatever it is. And there was people I would say from age 10 to 12, which is probably a little too young for a Billy Connolly gig to, you know, <laughs> uh, 72 to 82 or something, you know, I mean, old people and young people, people who, if they met in the foyer of the show would never imagine where they would start a conversation with each other. They would think mm. they had nothing in common. And they're in that room, like combined in this moment, they were all laughing at the same thing, the same thing that this, man armed with nothing more than his thoughts like the way that he looked at the world was so compelling and interesting and most importantly hilarious that they were all joined as one in this sort of celebration of whatever it was that he was doing and i remember mm. just sitting there in the room that night and having that feeling of what is what is this like whatever this is this is what I want to be around. Like this is the mm. most exciting and interesting and wonderful thing that I've ever seen in my life. And yeah. part of it was that like, you know, that he was just, on, there was no guitar or other people in a show or I'd seen those sort of shows before, but the idea that this man was just in this theater to 3000 people, like, you know, saying what he had to say in the way that he wanted to say it was revolutionary to me. And that everyone was getting such enjoyment out of it. And anyway, I still went off to university and I, you know, became a fan of comedy, but I didn't like imagine that that could be, you know, something I was necessarily pursuing as a career. I was becoming a journalist. And so I studied hard and I didn't even, you know, do sort of like, you know, the university is a place where you can experiment with comedy and acting and performing, but I didn't because I thought my life had this other path. And so I was dedicated to that path. And so I was working full-time and studying full-time and working as a journalist, finished, graduated first in my course. And was like had so many job offers all around the country like mm. every place was like come and work for us and i went into my boss at the financial review in the canberra press gallery and i told him that i was not happy that like i should be happy that you know on paper everything in my life was you know like you couldn't art there would be people you know who i'd studied alongside who just would have died you know, dedicated the last three years to having the opportunities that were being presented to me. And I was not happy. And I 
so didn't know if that was just life. Is, was that life? Like mm. I was lucky enough that I was good at something and it was going well. Like, was it too much to ask that it would also be something that, you know, gave me human nourishment? Like, because this didn't. Like I mm. knew it wasn't for me and I knew saw the people who were good at it and I was like, I'm not that type of person. That's not who I can be. Like I've signed up for something and even done well at something that, and I'm about to get sucked into a life of doing something that I might even yeah manage to be good at, but I'm never going to fully 100% enjoy. And I went to my boss who would, the guy who'd sacrificed the most over the last few years to have me there, present me with opportunities, give me his knowledge. So the person who'd invested the most in me, like, you know, like to go to that person to have to say, thank you, but I don't, this isn't, I, I, this isn't for me. And so I was so lucky. His name is Tom Burton. I always like to say his name because he changed mm. my life. Um, and so his name is Tom Burton. And he said to me, despite all that, he said, no, that's, that's okay. He said, you know what? Here's the good news. He said, you've managed to do very well at something that your heart's not in. So I have the full belief that if you can find something that your heart is also in and you apply the same sort of, dedication to doing it that you'll also be successful at that he said what was the last time when was the last time that you felt passionate about something and i thought back to that room with mm. billy Connolly sitting alongside my mother and i was like that's it that that was my moment that was my moment mm. where i heard my calling it took me a while to go and do some other things first it wasn't like an immediate oh zap me in my chair and now i know what i want to do in my life but once I'd gone off and tried something else and and realized what it was that I needed, um, it was the moment that I was called back to. I was, just to finish that story, I I was lucky enough a couple of years ago because Billy's obviously not well now and can't tour anymore. Mm. And um, yeah, I was lucky enough to take my mother to go and see Billy Connolly on his last tour in that exact same room that we um that we'd seen him in all those years before and better seats. Cause I have connections now in the comedy industry. <laughs> so, um, but uh, no, no, it was a great pleasure to be able to share that again with her because it was such a, you know, huge, huge moment in my life in, in that sense. Yeah. Well, you're, you're very good at, um, I can't imagine uh, a person of faith not leaning forward in terms of the parallels in, in the story. Um, yet if that was your experience um, as a kid, there were things at university which brought you back to this. Th this is how much I'm trying to do Lincoln's, right? Um, <laughs> uh, you had an experience of heaven um, and uh, wrote about it that a university lecturer then read before everyone that, um, uh, do you see what I did there? Yeah, I did see yeah, what you did there. Do, do you want to um, kind of bring people into, because I think that's important because Sometimes these moments are talked about as being very dramatic, Damascus Road kind of thing. But for often it's kind of sneaking suspicions. What what really brings me alive? There was something that happened with that university lecturer that reminded you of that sneaking suspicion, right? Yeah. Um, so basically, there's. I was doing this journalism course and it was all going quite well, but uh, um, you know my heart wasn't really in it. And then uh, my. Uh, Teacher introduced me to a writer who is problematic in a bunch of his own ways, but this will come as no surprise to anybody, Hunter S. Thompson. And there was something about the way that he wrote about, looked at the world, wrote about the world, like interpreted the world. And like, you know, there was, you know, not always great messages in his writing, but there was messages all over his writing. And he just wrote in such an entertaining way. And so our, our assignment was to find a story that was unique and then try to have, 
like a first person journalism perspective. So basically in journalism, sometimes it's that idea of you're an objective observer of something, right? You're not in the middle of it, but this was very much, you know, I'm not going to be an observer from the outside. I am going to go and live the experience and then write about whatever the experience was. So I remember going to the opening night of Canberra's first queer um, uh, nightclub. So Canberra, which was actually a reasonably like, you know, you know, queer, uh, accepting community it's a university and political class like you know mm. generally it's a pretty progressive place when it comes to these sort of ideas but they just didn't have a dedicated nightclub at that stage and so they opened this place called heaven and i remember going to the first night of it and spending like a night there which funnily enough like it was not just revelatory in sort of um i'm i'm i think i guess maybe it was the first time i'd ever been to a gay nightclub like I, I don't really like I. It's funny to think about now because obviously having been in the arts community for twenty five years, like I found myself performing in and partying in plenty of gay nightclubs over the, my many years. So they all kind of blend into one. But I think as a boy from country Victoria, it was a community that wasn't really represented out and proud in that sort of way. And so mm. I think you know, in a way, that I knew that I was putting myself into something that was a bit out of my experience. But what my probably revelation from that moment was that it wasn't actually anywhere near as far from what my experience of the world was that I thought it might've been. I kind of mm. expected that I would walk into this place and, you know, meet these people who were from a different planet, but really they just felt like ordinary people who were out having a good time and celebrating themselves. You know what I mean? Like, I think my revelation was that all that difference I was looking for, there wasn't actually fundamentally much difference at all you know they were just people right and so anyway I wrote a piece about it and you know I think probably having that revelation gave it a good heart at the middle of it but I was also had be able to have some fun about you know like you can imagine me Jared lots of good you know god and heaven you know parallels that I was making in my piece <laughs> about the gay nightclub in Canberra and uh I um yeah my my lecturer my tutor liked it so much that he like read it in front of the class, like literally just read it out like to people as like, you've just got to hear this. And it wasn't just that he read it out because I have a bit of a natural suspicion of authority figures in general. So like it wouldn't have been that he read it out that really I responded to what I responded to was how much people liked it. Yeah, You know, that was the thing that like, these were my, you know, sort of, you know, peers, the people I was in class with, you, sometimes you're in competition with, sometimes you're in collaboration, but sometimes you don't even know half of them like closely. But suddenly, again, it was this sort of feeling of everyone sort of being on the same page and like being the person who had created that page that we were all on. But again, this is still not even me performing, right? Mm. This is my lecturer reading this out. Like I'm not the person up the front who's. It's somebody who's, else doing your material. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so my like my best friend at university was a, a lovely man by the name of Adam Harvey. And uh, I don't always mention his name in the stories because sometimes the stories they tell about the time we spent together are not, would not reflect well on his modern journalism career. But uh, he was he's a, a brilliant journalist, has worked on Four Corners and is an mm. ABC foreign correspondent. And yeah, he and I were very close at, at university and he was the guy who took all the opportunities and, and did make it into a really fine career. But um, I remember telling him that I was giving it all up to go to Melbourne and be part of comedy. And I remember the surprise, 
like literally i realized i've you've been one of my closest friends for the last three years and this is how much i've hidden this from you that mm-hmm. you are surprised that i'm telling you this like it wasn't like oh yeah of course that's what you've always wanted to do and that it was like shock it was weird and we've spoken about it like you know in the years since and he's always like i just thought you were making a terrible mistake <laughs> <laughs> oh no it's interesting um going back to like how we think about calling um because there's two different ways that i've heard people recently like some people talk about calling in terms of uh your deep gladness where your deep gladness and the world's deep needs meet, right? So that's one mm-hmm. way that some people talk about it. Uh, but the uh, theologian and mystic um, and mentor to Dr. King, Howard Thurman, he actually says, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know how that, does that kind of speak and resonate to you in terms of your own experience? I, th- I think they're both true. Is, yeah. is honestly what I would say. Like, yeah. let's speak about them in reverse order. But I do think that absolutely, if you come alive in that place, and that's, I didn't even realize at that point that I was going to be a stand-up comedian. I just knew that comedy was the place that made me feel happy. And there are plenty more jobs mm. in the world of comedy that aren't being a stand-up comedian. You can write for a comedian, be a producer, an agent, a yeah, venue manager, like put on a show. Like, I mean, you know, they design the costumes, like they're like, it's an industry. So yeah. like, I just knew that it, I wanted to be around it. And I knew that it happened in Melbourne. Like, I certainly think that if you find a place that makes you come alive, then you find what that need in the world is for that thing. Right. Yeah. So I think that the first one is also true in right. that for me, like so much of my material, and this is how Jared gets to, you know, hook me into his podcast because he knows I like talking about these sort of things. But so, so much of my material is about, you know, like thematically, like I think we're, we are, you know, incredible human beings. However, mm. it is that we got here and whatever people believe about what that is, like this evidence that we may be the only version of what we are that there is ever going to be and what comes with the responsibility of that, which is, you know, what are is are we as human beings? What are we trying to achieve while we are here? What are we doing well and what are we not doing well? Is like at the very heart of, you know, the sort of entertainment that I like to make. All my comedy comes from that place, you know, mm. and, you know, and, and of self-examination. Like I said, you know, examining myself and where I'm at and how I'm doing in my relationship to the world and, you know, what I believe my contribution to the world should be. And then it is about going, well, you know, often the topics that I talk about in my comedy, if I am talking about climate change or inequality or, you know, these sort of issues that like the place that like I'll have people say to me, you know, you should run for politics or you should No, this is the place where I can contribute mm. to what the world needs. You know, I have the capacity to talk about these things in a way that is also funny and interesting to people. Yeah. And like, I like being funny and interesting to people. And the way that I'm good at being funny and interesting to people is to be able to talk about these things that I see as issues like with the world and our relationships with each other, but in a way that hopefully gets through. And like, that's not to say my way is a superior or inferior way to all the other ways. It's like climate change protests. I think we Mm. need the people who throw soup on art 
you know, as much as we need the people who are saying, you know, let's do this the way through the processes. We need them all. Like we need yeah. all of them to be working. Jared knows this very much from his work around like activism, which is that like you need all of it. Like, yeah. it's not like, you know, that you need the people who believe that, you know, hey, the, the climate is the biggest issue in the world. And why are we not paying enough attention to this thing that like is the biggest issue in the world? We need them as much as we need the people who are, you know, taking you know, different approaches to those things. And so it is absolutely about not just the place where I find joy, but the place where I've found that, yeah, what, what does the world need from me? Or what do I perceive that the world needs from me? And how can I you know, fulfill that in a way that, you know, they yeah. like and I feel proud of. Mm. Well, right at the beginning in meeting Rowan, you're talking about um, a love for experiences and if meeting people could be surrounded by an experience instead of the kind of transactional thing that usually happens. Um, and there is something so beautiful both in your stand-up um, and in your books as well with the new book, around how you invite us into certain um, experiences that move past, you know, religion at its worst does these easy answers, cheap takes kind of stuff that, that goes on. And instead you invite us into an experience, into an encounter. And my favourite one, which um, I cried in initially um, uh, before I got to the end of the chapter and um, because I'm reading it and I'm like, Will gets me. Like there was something about your description of it where I'm like, Jared's particular neurological um, uniqueness is captured in this chapter. I feel like Will gets me, um, Will understands me, and it was your experience with the echidna. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to the end of the chapter, I felt quite different about as I had felt at the start of it. Um, I'm wondering, uh, like, I don't want to spoil stuff for you, but would you invite us into that? Because what you took away from that was like, so powerful, um, so funny, but I mean, I I'm not sure what mystical experiences are other than what you were describing, um, but maybe I'll let you tell the story. I mean, it's, look, I mean, I will say this, it is almost too hard to tell. Like, I mean, the reason it goes for 3000 words in the book is because I think the actual story itself is nothing. And I'll, when I explain what the story is, I saw an echidna in my backyard. That's the story, really. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, like, it's amazing that there is 3,000 words about somebody seeing an echidna in their backyard. Like, I mean, there is a twist to the story, but like, yeah, essentially, that is the story. And the story, I think, actually is less about the story and more about the various ways that that echidna was just that day I was looking at the world from a whole bunch of different perspectives. So I'm not going to mm -hmm. tell the story because I think it would be people better for them to read it and understand it that way. But I will say, I'll tell you what I was feeling that day was like during that period of time, I spent a lot of time reflecting on, you know, the, these conversations that we're having, you know, you know, who I, who am I as a person and, you know, what, what is, my relationship with the world and, you know, my job and what I do and, and what do I want to say and how do I want to say what I want to say? And a lot of that is just about me trying to look at the world from different perspectives. So much of the book is about, I love hearing other people's perspectives about the world. And, and if they, just because they don't align with my, my perspective on the world is like, I'm not sure I'm right. Like, you know, like I'm, I, I'm just guessing my best guesses at how the world mm. works, but I like to look at the world and try to see things from different perspectives. And so this day for the very first time in my life, I saw an echidna 
in my backyard. And to me, that's just like, it's an amazing looking creature. Like it's adorable, yeah. but like dangerous. It's this real, you know, like, and th- anyway, the story goes through this process of me essentially looking at this echidna in very different ways, which is initially, you know, through just the pure joy that I was experiencing this moment, that I was seeing something that I've never seen before, you know, and it was there in my backyard. I hadn't had to travel to a zoo or like, you know, gather up the family. We're going to go and see the echidna. Like, no, it just happened. You know, I just walked outside and, you know, didn't even have to look up. I looked down at my feet and there was like an echidna and, uh, and, you know, and, but then there was something about the echidna that like, you know, it's so soft, you know, underneath, but it's so spiky on the outside. And it felt very emblemic of the times in which we were living that where we'd had to put up this barrier between us, you know, like, you know, sometimes like a literal 1.5 meters, but often like barriers that were even like state borders or international borders. Mm. You know, there were so many barriers that were in between us and, um, and then I realized that I didn't know much about this echidna. So then it becomes this story of me essentially doing my own research, which is something I rally against in other parts of the book because <laughs> I am nothing but complicated. Um, and and then the joy of discovery about this ancient creature that has like been here so many more years, you know, than we have been here on the planet, and and the remarkable survival story and how little we think about, you know, these stories and. And how it is that we as human beings, you know, came to consider ourselves to be so special um, and so above everything else in the world in which we live. And then, you know, it becomes my general ramblings then, Jared, about how I my I think we work better if we work together. That's, you know, it's a pretty, yeah. like, it's a pretty simple philosophy at the heart of things. I just think that if you look at the existence of human beings, we've always been in a better place where people work together there are absolutely downsides to communities communities can get bad ideas and pass them on to each other and all sorts of things but in a general sense as human beings we 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 evolved to the top of the food chain because we work together that is Mm. our, our great secret and it feels sometimes like we are rushing so quickly towards like wanting to get through this and end it and finishing it all up and you're like no that's not the point you know there's um uh a Maori, and again, I, I hesitate to drop in these sort of things because I always, please, I hope I'm not saying anything in a way other than the joyous way that I want to share this. But there's a Maori term, which I believe you pronounce whakapapa, whakapapa, whakapapa. It's a tough, anyway, it's the idea, it, it talks about us being linked with not just the past generation. We are not just the, you know, the the evolution of, you know, what came before us and aren't we special, but we've always got to be thinking about us as being, you know, the step between the, you know, the next thing. We're not just Mm. the end result, but we're the link to what comes next and eventually will be, you know, the distant memory. And that is part of what we are and our responsibility as human beings. And, and that to me is anyway, it becomes that. And then there's like some revelations at the end. It's a very fun story, but it's like very boring if you actually just tell what the story is on the on the it, surface of it. It's I mean, you're such a masterful communicator. Like um uh, I love your heart, your humility, um, like your disarming intelligence and how you invite people in. Uh, but just anybody interested in communication, that whole chapter is just, um, it, it, it's so breathtaking. Like it, it's written in such a way that is, um, uh, it's so generous 
um, while also staying um, really humble. So I, I really appreciate it. Well, I mean, the funny thing is, it's like literally a story on the surface, if you just saw it happen, of an echidna walking about 20 metres. <laughs> it's, it's really actually what the story is. But there is a journey that goes on inside my head and inside my soul that, that goes for about 3,000 words. So <laughs> that might be an indication of how much in my head I was. That's So... Um... For me and Jared, during the during the pandemic, one of the things that uh, Jared for a little while was thinking about doing, he was really excited about the possibility of us doing a mini series um, kind of addressing conspiracy theories and like Christians and like the intersection of of conspiracy theories and Christians. And we've had some conversations kind of wrestling with whether or not um, that's like a white people's problem, like in terms of how those things are intersecting. Um, you know, I, I did tell him, you know, we've got our own uh, conspiracy theories in the black community here in the U.S., but it's not those same ones, right? We're not like concerned yeah. about the deep states, you know, uh, conspiring against the freedom of of freedom loving no. Americans or something. But most, um, most, most of the ones, unfortunately, the black community in America have were things that actually happened that got covered up. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff, yeah. right? In yeah. fact, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. It was like. It, they used to say they were conspiracy theories and later it's like, oh no, the FBI revealed yeah. it actually yeah. happens. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 There's happens. Conspiracy yeah. yeah. But, um, but I'm curious because Jared also mentioned that your context has changed uh, during the pandemic. And so you moved to white into what might be uh, considered, you know, the anti-vax conspiracy Mecca of Australia. Yeah. So we're curious, you know, what does it look like to love your neighbors who regard apple cider vinegar, like maybe me and Jared regard Jesus? It's, uh, <laughs> I've had lots of it. This is where my experience of being a friend with Jared for ages comes in handy. <laughs> oh, that's kind. Uh, no, it's, um, I, what I will say is that I, I mean, I like people's explanations for the world again so mm. it, like hearing a different one appeals to me because like like i like jared's explanation for the world like it doesn't you know check out in the way that i want to look at the world but i like it like and it <laughs> makes a lot of sense for him and like you know i like i'm like that's as good a guess as any and it seems to work for him in a good positive way so it, you know no harm no foul and like i've had people who've believed all sorts of you know things that i would not believe in but like they're great people and but the problem is that in this time, it suddenly became a little dangerous to the community. Obviously, in a time of global pandemic, there were serious reason, reasons why some of, like, firstly, there was bad actors who were, people were looking, in times of great turmoil, people look for answers. And that is a role that for a whole bunch of people in the world, their religion plays. But in this modern world, like, you know, there are a lot of, it didn't surprise me there was an overlap between some forms of religion and some mm. forms of the community conspiracy move, because mm -hmm. it is the same impulse, which is, here is this thing that I do not understand. And here is this organization, whether it be like a church or whether it be some self-help group or whatever it is, who says, here are 10 pretty good rules or 12 pretty good rules that you can follow that might, you know, give you some sort of order in this universe that doesn't feel to have any order. And if you're looking for an explanation that something's coming going on and there's this person who's like, here's this explanation. And maybe even some of it overlaps with some of the things you already believe about the religion that you believe in, then 
I can see how people are susceptible for that. Like they're looking mm. for answers. And also we live in a world where we don't understand how often we're being manipulated by the technology on which we consume things. So obviously during mm -hmm. the pandemic, a lot of people weren't in their ordinary communities. They were in their online communities. And what people don't really understand about like your online algorithm is that it can be so subtly adjusting you at all times. You spend three or four, five seconds over that article that says, is COVID-19, you know, a real thing? And even if you just read the headline and pause a bit, it just subtly adjusts your feed. So the next time you're going to see more of the articles that seem to support the same thing because it caught your eye. That's how it works. And so when we're only in our online communities, I absolutely understand how good people can start believing really bad ideas. Like mm. it just can happen very subtly. It's not like somebody goes from being a good person to a believing a terrible thing overnight. It's a very subtle process where they can believe bit by bit. And then suddenly they can find themselves in a community that has a whole bunch of bad beliefs. But, you know, the fact that it's their community and they have no other community and this is why I argue both in the book and in my stand-up that there has to be some capacity for forgiveness of people making mm. dumb dumb decisions, particularly during the pandemic. You know, particularly, like, you know, if somebody's going through a crisis, you know, a friend of ours or whatever's going through a hard time, you forgive them. They just lost their parent. Oh, don't worry. I know they got a bit too drunk tonight, but, you know, like their mum just died and they're probably processing a whole bunch of... Like, you, you are more willing to give someone forgiveness in those moments for their actions. The whole world's been through that sort of thing. And it's very mm. hard to judge people based on how they responded to these unusual circumstances and conditions. And so firstly, I lead with a lot of empathy and understanding of how they got there. I think you can understand how someone got to a place without needing to agree on the things that they believe in. Right. Mm. Like that's what I like to do, I guess is like, you know, and it's the same when I talk to people who are religious is like, I, I like to know how you got there. And, and, you know, <laughs> you know, why you believe what you believe. And I, I find that very interesting. I, I, when we get to the end point, we don't need to believe the same thing for us to mm. have that conversation. And so a lot of the time that was just the conversation I was having was the conversation of how'd you get here? And part of that was me absolutely thinking, and how do I get you back out of here? Like, how do we as mm -hmm. a world, like, because the problem is if we cut them off, you believe in this, like the story I tell is uh, I have a dear friend and uh, absolutely dear friend who wrote to the Vatican asking for their umbilical cord back during the pandemic because <laughs> one of the conspiracies was that the Vatican has everybody's umbilical cords in your original birth certificate. And if you write to the Vatican, they will return it to you. And this was a thing that people were doing and it was a thing a friend of mine did. And, and as a professional stand-up comedian and like a friend, like the amount of willpower that I've had to use to not bring that up every time I run into this person, you know, to check in on whether he's got his umbilical cord back yet from the Vatican. But the truth is, I know that if I make fun of him for that, he's going to feel terrible about that. Like that was a moment where he did something that I think in retrospect, he, yeah, he was in a dark moment and it felt like something that for whatever reason, that was something that he needed to do. If I cut him off and the only people he can hang out with are other people who believe things equally that stupid, then eventually he's going to start to believe some of the other stupid things they believe. And that's how you get wellness instructors who used to be into the, you know, oneness of life and the universe and spirituality walking alongside neo-Nazis at freedom marches because mm. they have a shared bad idea. And then suddenly they get chit chatting, you know, about some of their other bad ideas that they have. So I, I think it's, 
you know, I, I, so it's been interesting to be in a community where mind is not the prevailing wisdom. Um, I, I listen a lot, which is like what I like to do anyway, when I'm not actually performing, <laughs> I like to so fill up the bucket so it can all come out when I talk to other people. Um, <laughs> and then, um, but yeah, I think that you can understand someone like, I mean, one of the big themes of the book and my work recently has been about the idea of how do you separate a person from their ideas and how much is a person, their ideas, or how much can you love somebody, but not love, you know, or agree with the thing that they're saying, like how much can you uh, understand your opponent's best argument, not their worst argument as a, yeah. as a stand up comedian, it's very easy to create a straw person yeah. Um, and of all the worst arguments against what you do and then just be very smart and knock them all down. Like, you know, if you take all the worst arguments about anything and you create this a straw man person out of them and then prove how smart you are by refuting the worst of something, then like, that's very, like, I mean, something I did a lot in my comedic career early on. And it's just something that I have tried to evolve out of, which is I try to make a straw person out of my opponent's best arguments and see if I can, make a compelling case, you know, to debate those, you know, and uh, I think that's more interesting and more challenging mm. and it takes you more interesting places because if you try to truly understand how someone got there, then I think you can, you know, hopefully even make comedy that they might at least enjoy, even if they mm. don't agree with. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I've always, so I, I uh, teach uh, undergrad students and um, I'm always, having the conversation about straw man arguments, right? And trying to move them beyond creating these kind of one dimensional, superficial straw man arguments that I think our society is just so prone right now to push people into those kind of conversations. Um, that's not helpful. Also heard you say something interesting that it almost sounded like echoes of Dr. King a little bit, um, but you were mentioning the separating or how you deal with a person versus like maybe the harmful ideologies that people have internalized, right? And Dr. King certainly talked quite a bit about um, the differentiation between how we uh, treat the person versus then trying to challenge systems of injustice, right? We can seek out to destroy the systems of injustice, right? And bring an end to those things, um, but we're not gonna try to destroy the person that we're actually uh, we're actually going to, so he would say, love our enemies in such ways that we can actually convert an enemy into a friend, which I think is kind of getting at at least somewhat of what you're getting at, right? There's this possibility in exchange um, where folks can be um, engaged, not just let loose or disregarded, um, but still seeing their uh, humanity and their full, the complexity of the person uh, mm. behind them. Yeah, um, but bad, bad, bad yeah. ideas have always been they're destructive i generally believe that they're destructive to the people who have them also like yeah. if something's yeah. a bad idea yeah. and i've had bad ideas in my life you know like i was raised with things that did not gel as me as i went on my journey of what that i thought was important and you know there were things the way that like i as a teenager like saw women was so informed by like a very old fashioned idea of like you know what sort of respect we should have towards women and like you know like I feel like I was done a disservice by yeah. being raised in that environment because I had yep. to then yeah. make a bunch of mistakes before I had enough knowledge and information to be able to yeah. understand that like, that wasn't how I personally, and I wish that I'd always been raised in the way that was intrinsic to who I am as a person. So like, I think we've got to be very careful about like judging somebody for having a bad idea, particularly if like, 
I mean, I've had plenty of bad ideas in my life. And one of the great liberating things is when you are able to move on from a bad idea and realize that mm. like you've actually progressed forward. So I think most people who have bad ideas, you hope that you can just liberate them from the bad idea. Mm. You know, you don't like, yeah. you know, like the simplest solution isn't to get rid of the person who's got the bad idea. Right. The simplest, the best solution is to liberate the person from the bad idea and what we do know is like by telling them that they're an idiot and that they're stupid and you know, it's a stupid idea is it's not a very successful way to do it. Unfortunately, right. it, can it's, it's a- it can be fun as a comedian, but it is unfortunately <laughs> not very productive. <laughs> but not transformational. It's that bell hooks um, quote where um, she talked about that. The, the first people to be oppressed by patriarchy uh, is men who have to die to um, all that, is in themselves that would make them um, uh, otherwise treat women um, with respect. Um, well, this is all, I mean, for an agnostic, it's all sounding suspiciously Jesus-y. Um, one of the things that, one of the things that um, also kind of sounds pretty Jesus-y um, throughout the book is you talk about this, like, you know, amnesty for dumb things people believed in the pandemic. So like a forgiveness for individuals. But um, you talk about um, if you want a conspiracy, um, you aim that directly at certain institutions that are animating um, uh, policies, not merely in Australia, but globally as well. Um, Can we talk a little bit about um, what you name in terms of fossil fuel companies? Well, I mean, we can talk about whatever we want to talk about. It's fine with me. <laughs> like, um, well, I talk about the idea that if we're looking for a conspiracy, you know, if you want to look, you see there's bad actors in the world who are intentionally acting against the best interests of humanity in the world and have been constantly funding the media and journalists to keep mm. quiet about it over the years, then we already have them. They are called the fossil fuel companies. We know this to be the case because even they have admitted it is the case that yeah. they had the knowledge about the damage that they were doing to the world. And one of the things I talk about in the book is you never know. You never know until you're tested how you're going to react to that test. So when the fossil fuel companies were tested, they found out that what they were doing was damaging to the planet. They had a choice in that moment, which was that they could change what they were doing on behalf of everybody else, or that they could continue to keep it a secret and become impossibly rich off the back of everybody else's misery and suffering. And they, spoilers, in case you're trying to binge the last days of humanity, uh, they covered <laughs> up that information and they decided to keep being rich. I was very proud of my community when the pandemic happened. And we were faced with the idea that the safest, the Melbourne Comedy Festival was one of the first things to get shut down. And Mm. it was shut down willingly, without complaint by any of the comedians, because everybody said, this is the right thing to do. Like we, you know, we don't know what this thing is, and we are all willing to sacrifice. For most comedians, that's probably 90% of their yearly income, the Melbourne International Mm. Comedy Festival. And every single one of them said, of course, this is what we do on behalf of everybody. Like, and these aren't, rich mining in oil executives these are you know sometimes like you know a teaching aide who's spent like the last year saving their eight thousand dollars so that they can have enough money to put on a tiny show at the melbourne comedy festival they'll they'll be paying off for the rest of the next year every single one of them said yes of course like this is the right thing to do there wasn't an argument we didn't have a meeting there was no you know there wasn't even the sense that there would be any disagreement and yet these fossil fuel companies have had versions of that 
every day for the last 40 years where they have had the opportunity to make a good choice and have always made a bad choice. And, and it is just, it fills me with such incredible like rage and fury that so few people are exploiting the rest of humanity. You know, I mean, we talk about the various different privileges and perspectives. I mean, you know, look, I'm a white cishet, 48-year-old man who lives in Australia. There is no greater lottery ticket that you could be given than the circumstances in which I found my life. And so, mm. uh, you know, when I talk of humanity, I realize like, and absolutely appreciate the idea that there's already disproportionate wealth just between being born in Australia and being born in most of the rest of the world. You know, that alone, unless you're a First Nations person, puts you in a pretty adva advantageous position. So, but the disparity between the 50 people who have half of everything and the rest of the planet, which it now is, is that is not a way to be running a humanity of some kind. This is, mm. this mm. is wrong. Like I speak about it all the time that the way that we glorify wealth in our society is immoral. Like, I mean, in any sense of that word, you can yeah, say in yeah, a Jesus yeah. sense that it's outrageous. <laughs> Like every time one of those guys buys a new yacht or like sends a rocket into space, they should like put on the news alongside the article, how many people it could have fed, how much mm. of world hunger they could have solved, how many people they could have educated out of poverty and their life circumstances with the fucking money that they're wasting on the vanity mm. that they have in a world that is set up. No one should have, you can start having too much when everybody has enough. Yeah. I'm not saying that you yeah. can't have too much. Let's get to a world where everyone has so much enough that we're happy for people to also have too much. But yeah. until that, like we're done with getting everyone enough, like this ridiculous point we are now in our world, it's, and it's just getting worse. And we're not having a critical conversation around how at the heart of everything, that is the biggest issue. The biggest issue in the world is the inequality. And there is a handful yeah. of people who be, could be doing so much more about making this a, you know, a, anyway, like even these billionaires who pledge to give away all their money at the end of their life and stuff. And you're like, yeah, but the end of your life's 30 years from now, like, or whatever, or 90 years. Cause you're going to try to like become immortal through some weird technology. So <laughs> spending billions of dollars on how about this for a legacy and your immortality. Be the guy who's like, oh, you know who I am? I've got a, um, a warehouse full of vintage cars. Yeah, that's what I do. Oh, great. Yeah, you know how there was no one in like um, Flint has like clean drinking water? I'm the person mm. who made sure they have clean drinking water. That's what I did with my last year. I'm sure your cars wow. are nice too. But like, you know, <laughs> that, sh that yeah. should be what we're celebrating for. Like, I don't want to know about like how many times some billionaire's been to space or how big their boat is. I want to know about how many people they fed last year i want to know about mm. how many people they lifted up out of the circumstances they're in and i want to know mm. how many towns they rebuilt after natural disasters to try and like redo to the planet some of the harm that they have caused against the planet like not all of them have it's very hard to earn that much money without doing something that is substantially like damage sure. the planet or humanity most of the people yeah. who are in those circumstances are in those even if you just take out the idea that like no one should have that much money compared to anybody else but right. even if they had made that much money even the best of them the ones that you can look at and go these are the best of them like mm. everybody has exploited someone or something to get to the point where you have 
that much money. It just, yep. it, there is no other way of it working. And so that much. Yep. you should be constantly like what I can imagine. Imagine having the capacity to educate millions and not doing it. Imagine yeah. having the capacity to feed millions and then not doing it. Like, how do you even do that? How do you even get up in the day and know that, like, anytime I buy a lotto ticket, you know, for $10 million, I'm carving up who are all the various people that, you know, I'm, and yes, some for myself too, but like, like hmm. you, that you're carving up, this imaginary thing you're carving up. Imagine if you actually had that every day, the equivalent of every day they wake up and they won the lottery. They won the biggest lottery there is, like the biggest one in the world. Every day when they get up, they won that. They won that that day. And you've got that day to do with, that's the, re the reality of the situation we live in. You're not spending, every day I'd be like, what can we fix today? Mm. What can we, you know, what can, like I, I can do it. I can do it. I've got the capacity. Here's what I'm doing for the rest of my life, changing people's lives. Mm. Wow. Imagine then deciding, nah, I'm not going to do that today. <laughs> <laughs> like, can you imagine? That's wild. I don't understand. I don't understand how any, like. Yeah. The, the, I mean, that's cool, but I could buy Twitter instead. I can buy Twitter right? instead. <laughs> You could um, essentially end world hunger for five years, I think is the stat I have in yeah. the book. End world hunger for five years with the profits that those major companies made during the pandemic. That's crazy. So if they just went to what the companies were worth before the pandemic happened, this global event that most people suffered in some way in and that they got super rich during, if they just said, we're going to take that money we earned during that time. We're not going to give you back the billions and billions we had before that. We're literally just going to the super profits we made during that time. We're going to redistribute to the world mm. to make the world better. The world would be mm. substantially better just based on that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Drew, one of the best sermons I've heard for a while. Yeah. Was, <laughs> he was preaching. I was like, amen. And Will, I wonder if one of the empowering things um, for so many of us listening, and we're aware that um, Inverse is a diverse community um, with people listening in the majority world, and so we try and structure even how we do our Patreon in ways that um, uh, we have little experiments in um, shared economy where um, uh, people who have needs are able to support others amongst our listeners, which has been really beautiful. And so in the pandemic, um, we had people lose jobs, um, and we were able to support some people. And we had other people who uh, um, uh, were looking at homelessness and we were able to pay for rent, other people in terms of um, study expenses and, you know, just the realities of what it is to um, be listening from Kenya versus being listening um, uh, in middle class Australia or the US for that matter. Um, there's, different, there's different people consuming this. All that to say... I think one of the empowering things is that um, we don't have to wait until we're billionaires or even millionaires um, to respond to your beautiful invitation of what it is to reimagine our lives. Um, once the basics are covered, um, what could I do with my life and um, uh, with my bank account and my talents and um, passions 
for others. And you've been such a beautiful example of that, not in flashy ways, handing over big checks. Or, but I mean, even your heart for, um, like when I said, hey, um, uh, can Rowan come on and how generous you were with that, what you've done with Question Everything. And um, uh, for those who aren't in Australia or watching Questioning Everything from elsewhere in the world, um, Will has provided this amazing opportunity for up and coming comedians to actually get a foot in the door of television um, and do so at a time where gigs were cancelled everywhere. They're, they're beautiful examples that open up what we can all do, Will. Um, do you want to tell people a little bit behind the heart behind um, what you did with Question Everything? Uh, yeah, okay. Um, well, I, I think the, the, I mean, obviously during the pandemic, I was thinking about, you know, my place in my community. That's what we're talking about, right? And so for me, yeah, comedy is my community. You know, it was that revelation that I had at 17 years old. You know, this is the place that I want to be. And I've been lucky enough that, you know, when I started doing the Melbourne Comedy Festival, um, you know, I think it was only six years old. To me, it was the biggest thing mm. in the world. I find that hard to believe in retrospect because I it was already to me like, you know, the Super Bowl or the whatever. Yeah. You know, that was like, <laughs> it felt like as big as a thing that it could possibly be. And and so obviously I'd, I've done it for a quarter of a century now. And, you know, it's it's a world, you know, it's it's one of, if not the best comedy festival in the world. And yeah. it's a, you know, internationally regarded festival. And just by going back every year, you know, I was lucky enough that it kind of became, you know, they adopted me as I adopted it. And it became, you know, the anchor of my community, which is that I do the comedy festival every year. And in doing so have ended up being, you know, partly just because I come back every year, like the top selling artist in the history of the festival, you know, is yeah, like yeah. more people have seen me do comedy there than anybody else in the history mm. of the Melbourne Comedy Festival. It's actually probably one of the things that I am most proud of when it comes to yeah. like list, listing how I measure, you know, like my contribution to the community. So what do you give back? Like, what are the ways that you give back to the community? Well, part of it is like like through lobbying on behalf of like those who are coming through, hoping that they get the same opportunities that you got and doing whatever you can to support, you know, those opportunities. Sometimes you need to create them. Sometimes mm. you are like, if the opportunity isn't there, you have a responsibility. And I've got to be honest with you, during the pandemic, I wasn't really looking to add an extra television show to my schedule. I was quite happy with the television show I already had. It fit quite nicely into what I did with my year. It was not really what, but I was looking at the idea of there was no panel shows where particularly when I first started, there was a show called good news week in Australia where yeah. a young comedian like myself could go on a panel, but you would be on with legends of the comedy industry and you get to work with them. And, you know, they, they create a space where you, didn't have any of the responsibility. You could just have fun and try to be funny. And I wanted to do that for other people. And I realized that, you know, in whatever little amount of power I have, I, um, I don't like to exercise my power. It's not really like the way that I work. I work in a very collaborative sort of way. It's very subtle, you know, sort of power structure, even in the programs that I work on, you know, like, everything's done in teams and I'm kind mm. of like a floating member of every team, but like, you know, so um, I, I wanted to do something that was like um, an opportunity. And I realized that the truth is that I could probably 
use some of that power that I probably have to make it happen. So I thought, oh, well, this is probably probably my responsibility, right? I probably should, uh, yeah. Um, annoyingly, there is a big part of me that very much enjoys the next generation of people. I'm I'm luckily not going to become one of those, uh, you know, grumpy old comedians who complains that everything was better in the olden days because I think that, like, <laughs> I love comedy. And so I love new comedy as much as I love old comedy. And I love seeing new people do it. And I love to see them discovering, having their moment of calling that I had had and understanding what it was to them and how they were brought to the community and understanding their story doesn't need to be my story. And I don't need to be mm. part of their story. You know, sometimes they're there because of me. And sometimes they're there because I'm the last thing that they would want to be, you know, like that's part of that story. Now, right. You start to talk about yourself and I'm not going to attempt the Mary name again, but the idea of the connection between generations, this idea that. I, I think your use of fucker papa was actually quite good. Yeah. I, I wondered Sorry. if you hesitated just because you're like, Oh, Christians, are they going to be okay with me? No, it was more, it was more that it always feels like I'm saying it wrong. Like I always right. feel like I'm saying it like to, it, it sounds like a swear word when I say it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I don't I don't mean it like that. I just so I, I want to be respectful, but I think it's such a powerful, like you know, this idea of the links and to see it and to be in it and to appreciate mm. being in a link that like mm. at, at one point in comedy. I was the new thing that was coming through the product of the evolution of what had come before me and then rode those waves of opportunities to like where I got to be in my career and my life. And then I'm not resentful that there are people like below like me and having that going through and being what I was then. I love that. That's how things should be. And mm. like, you know, I'm not going to be scared or afraid of that. I'm going to embrace that. And so that's what I wanted to do with the show was like embrace that provide a thing where we linked, you know, older because we also got older people on the show who didn't normally do those sort of shows, like had been out yeah. of the industry a bit and tried to connect them with, you know, there was this generation that came before us. I always say this about Wendy Harmer, who's an Australian comedian yeah. had on the show. She was the first ever Australian woman comedian, the first ever yeah. Australian woman co comedian to host a TV show. Like every woman who mm. came after her, part of that, you know, that past that was forged was forged by her. So to have her on that show still and be able to connect the younger generation with this person who like, we would not have what we have without, you know, the hard yards that these people did as well, but also to say, Hey, here's all these new people and they're great and they're wonderful and we should provide them opportunities. And wouldn't it be great to work with them and have an opportunity for them? I love to work with new people and see mm. people starting out. So our idea with the show was that we would create a show where all that could happen. And then the extra step was that it, during the afternoon in the rehearsals, we would provide an opportunity for people who weren't even at that level of being the new person on the show. They were, you know, starting out even, you know, beyond that. And we give them an opportunity to come in and sit in, in the rehearsals. So to make a show like we make during the day, there's a series of rehearsals where I'll re rehearse the, you know, the, the spine of the show, the questions that are going to be asked, but obviously you don't get the panelists out there to, to do what they're doing. And so we would invite, you know, these newer comedians in to sit in the panel. We'd send them the information. We do it as if, you know, we're shooting the show, all the cameras, mm. all the microphones, all the bells and whistles, people would dress up or they'd sit on the panel. They'd get an opportunity to play at, you know, being on the show. And I loved it. Like my afternoons yeah. were just filled with joy. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. not just rehearsing the show, but I'm just getting to see these 
younger comedians start out and find their way and work out how to do it. And I mean, it was a great relief that this thing that I thought would bring me joy actually did bring me joy. I mean, you never know. <laughs> I, I, maybe I would have got there and been like, who are all these annoying new people? I hate young comedians. Everything was better in the olden days. But I was very um, excited to find that that wasn't the case. In fact, it's mm. the absolute opposite. I love talking to these new people and providing them an opportunity to get some experience that they can take on their way. It is immensely satisfying and so that is about that that idea that you were speaking to jared about what is it that you can contribute right like i have enough fame or jobs or tv shows or whatever it is <laughs> you know i have enough but is there something that i can do with that power is there a way that i can wield that power like if i step out of the way because that's another option step out of the way provide a position for somebody i know in the position i'm in then that thing just doesn't exist. Like, whereas I can use my power to provide an opportunity for all these other people. Um, there are other situations. The Melbourne Comedy Festival Gala is the biggest show mm. they do at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. They film, so it's a big show in a 3,000 seat theater. They feel, Everyone does about three or four minutes, five minutes maybe. Um, big lineup of the best comedians at the Comedy Festival. One of the most exciting things that ever happened in my life early on was getting to host the gala. I remember I, I probably did it like 16 to 20 times. It's a great wow. joy. They do it on TV. I haven't done it for the last four, five, five years at least, I think. Um, and the reason that I don't do that anymore is in that moment, the best thing that I can do for somebody else is to step aside. That's all yeah, that beautiful. I need to do. If I step aside in that moment, Literally, there is a position for somebody else that they would not have if I said yes when asked. So yeah. sometimes it's about using the power you have to create something that will provide people opportunities. And sometimes all you have to do is just not take an opportunity and leave that opportunity to somebody else. And I'd like to hope to think that I do both. I love you, Will. Like, uh, I'm just so thankful for who you are and what you do. I, I love um, your art and craft and everything you bring to it. And also the the subtleties of um, how you're able to be honest and yet have boundaries. Uh, I think um, I've actually learned a lot from you around that. Um, and yeah, just your generosity in general, but to me in particular um, and what it's meant to me, just thanks. I, I really appreciate you, mate. Oh, it's nice of you to say, but you don't need to, but I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> um, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, we'll wrap the, the proper podcast proper, um, but for our patrons, particularly those that um, uh, have taken, we have some people who are taking time off work um, to be a part of um, this, which is really lovely. Would you mind hanging around for 15 for a bit of Q&A? That's fine. Of course we can do that. Yeah. Oh, you're very kind. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.